We have come to the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, although, as I've been explaining along the way, the Sodom cycle, if you want to call it that, began in the previous chapter. Chapter 18 and 19 are very closely tied together and function as, as one story, even though it's got several different episodes in it. We saw the Lord came to visit Abraham and Sarah in the form of three men, promising them they were going to have a son. This is when Sarah famously laughed and they decided they were going to name the baby Isaac. And we saw previously two of those men went on to the city of Sodom while Abraham stayed behind to speak to the Lord. And he interceded for Sodom. And he says, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40? All the way down to what if there is 10? But in this chapter, those two men will arrive at that city. They're going to be met by Lot. And then we have one of the most tragic and, and quite frankly, one of the most sordid stories in the entirety of Scripture. And it's not easy reading, but the Lord put it there because we needed it. And so we don't want to avoid things like that. It's one of the reasons we teach verse by verse through the Bible is that we are forced to confront these things. And there's a few obvious lessons to learn from this passage. For our minds and in this day and age in which we live, the most obvious one is this is the, the definitive passage concerning the wickedness of homosexuality in the eyes of God. We also see a very clear picture of judgment from the Lord, which we haven't seen since the flood in the book of Genesis. We also see that there's mercy for the righteous, that the Lord will not punish the righteous with the unrighteous, and that gives us great hope. And it's important for us to remember as we go through this chapter that the Bible holds up Sodom as the benchmark for evil throughout the rest of the book. The rest of the Bible, you're in Isaiah, Jeremiah. If you're trying to compare a city or a people to how wicked they are, you compare them to Sodom. But those prophets very frequently, and even Jesus himself, would say, what you're doing is actually worse than what Sodom was doing. So why do you think you're going to escape? In Matthew chapter 11, talking to Capernaum, the city where Jesus lived during his ministry, he said, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So as we read through this, we want to be very cautious about becoming holier than thou and saying, wow, I'm so glad we're not like that because the Lord reminds us I look upon the heart, and just because you're not engaging in maybe the same gross ungodliness that we're going to read about, that does not mean that you don't have anything to sort out with the Lord God. This is not a happy story, but it does arrest your attention. It calls us to repentance, but as we will see, there, there is the mercy and grace of God at work even here, just as it's still working today. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to do this in three big chunks. We're going to start by reading the first 11 verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered the house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Lot to look at there. So we'll start at the very beginning. Very clear in verse 1 at least in the ESV, the way that it translates, that these two men were indeed angels. We knew that already. The word is malachim. It means messengers, but so does the word angelos in Greek, from which we get the term angel. They were more than just people. That's very clear. Now, they're in the city of Sodom. The location of Sodom has not been conclusively identified. And to that, I would say, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, as we're about to read. So you're not going to find much. But as, as far as we can tell from this, the clues we get here, but also from some other, other areas, archaeology and things, we know that the city of Zoar is down here in the southern tip of the Dead Sea, and that Zoar was in that region. So somewhere around the, the bottom of the Dead Sea, as we would look at it, is probably where Sodom was. And there is a school of thought that even believes that Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of that are under the Dead Sea. But of course, there's no way to know that for sure. But we have the general region of where we are. And we find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom. The city gate was where business was handled. It was where legal matters were handled. If you read through the book of Ruth, when they're trying to redeem her land, they go to the gate of the city in order to get that taken care of. Now, it's not certain, because it doesn't say it clearly, that Lot had some kind of authority in Sodom, but it sure looks like he did. Sitting in the gate of a city is like you're part of the, the elders, the ruling council, or you're even one of those respectable men that takes a shift in handling some of these things. So Lot is not only living in the city, but it seems, as, as far as we can tell, that he has some measure of authority here. The last time we saw Lot was in Genesis chapter 13, where their herdsmen, Lot and Abram's herdsmen, were arguing, and so they decided to separate. And it said that Lot looked out over the Jordan Valley towards Sodom, and he saw that it was good land, and he went there. We also saw him in Genesis chapter 14, where the invading army came in and carried off the city of Sodom, and Lot was in that group that was carried off. So Abraham saved him and delivered him, and that's when Abraham had his encounter with the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, that story. And it seems with Lot, like with Abraham in the last chapter, he recognizes that there's something about these guys because he gets up and bows himself before them and invites them to come and stay at his house. It seems that he had some awareness of, of what was going on, which would be appropriate based on what we know the Bible says about him. And he invites them to stay at his house and they say, no, we'll just sleep in the open square. And Lot knew full well what was going on in his town. No, no, no. You come and stay in my house. You want to keep in mind as we read through these passages, as I get into it, we probably won't touch on it as much, but you want to be comparing the way Lot handles these visitors to how Abraham handled them, because there's a lot of similarities there, and that's why these chapters tie together, the comparison and the contrast. 
So like Abraham and Sarah did, Lot invited God's messengers to come in. He gave them a feast. He made bread for them. There's probably significance to the unleavened bread as well. But you know, this story is going to end very differently from how the story did with Abraham and Sarah. In verse 4, a mob of men surround the house and start demanding that Lot send out the messengers. Send them out that we may know them, it says. It is very important that we understand exactly what these men are demanding from Lot here. Because a large number of people, and I would say even people who ought to know better, have gone to great lengths to deny the obvious sense of this passage. We've seen this in the Bible many times. To know someone, the Hebrew word is yada, is a euphemism that means to engage in sexual relations with somebody. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 17, that Cain knew his wife. Verse 25, it said that Adam knew Eve. Obviously, this is not talking about being familiar with somebody, although there is a very beautiful picture that's being put in there. But to say that we may know them can mean to know them, or it can mean to engage in sexual acts with them. So the question becomes, in this story, are they being literal, we want to know them, or are they being figurative with them? Now, we know how the tradition has interpreted this, of course. We, we have a word called sodomy that comes from this story. And the belief is that these men are attempting a homosexual gang rape of these angels. Brothers want to come in and say, no, 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 the problem is they were strangers and they wanted to get to know them because we don't want to just let anybody come and stay in our, our city. And I've heard people use this to preach against different immigration policies and all kinds of nonsense. But... And to be clear, there is a sense of the violation of hospitality in this story. Because you're comparing how the people of Sodom responded to a visitation from God compared to how Abraham responded to that. But there's more going on here. That doesn't account for Lot's solution to the problem, as wicked and awful as it was. If they say, send those men out because we want to make sure that they're not going to cause trouble. Why in the world would he say, no, how about you just meet my daughters instead? They're virgins. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't match up, does it? So when they say that we may know them, it's very clear that, they, like I said, this is an attempted homosexual gang rape of God's messengers. If you needed any further clarification, this is, has a very obvious parallel in the book of Judges chapter 19. And I'll read this and you can listen. And, and just listen to it because you can hear the parallels between the two stories. And the author did this deliberately. But listen to this. This is in Judges 19. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the master of the house went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Sounds familiar, right? But then he adds, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. So you, you see the obvious parallels between Sodom and this city, which was in Gibeah. And the point of that in the book of Judges, as you know, which is all about the wickedness of Israel without a king, is 
Even Sodom didn't do this. That's the whole point that they're trying to draw out. But it makes it very clear for our purposes what's at stake here is that this was not hospitality as the primary issue. The primary issue was sexual. So it should be laid to rest forever. And I I go into this in so much detail because there are people that want to, that's not what Sodom is about. Read it again. We're reading it right now, and I hope you see this. This passage, however you want to slice it, is the most scathing indictment of homosexuality in the Bible. Jude 7, describing this story, called it unnatural desire or strange flesh that these men went after. Now, as, as horrible as it was, and it was horrible, for Lot to suggest sending out his daughters to these men, you can see that they can't even be appeased by lust for a woman. And even when the angels struck them blind, they're still groping for the door. Have you ever known somebody that was so deep in their sin that even when they had completely hit rock bottom, they're still grasping after the same things that had blinded them? Now we can see why Abraham refused to even be blessed by the king of Sodom. Remember that in chapter 14? He says, hey, let's split the spoil. He goes, no, you take all of it. So I don't want anybody to say that Sodom made Abraham rich. All along the way, we've been getting these little teases of how evil Sodom is, and now you get to see it. And why God came down. The city was irredeemably wicked. And there are many who have an agenda to legitimize homosexual behavior through the Bible. There are some that don't care what the Bible says. You've got others who are very insistent on finding a way to make the Bible say that engaging in homosexual activity is okay and has the blessing of God. This is obviously, as you can imagine, a major problem passage for them. And so they take what is the minor issue here and make that the major issue and then get rid of the major issue entirely, which is a very common strategy when you don't want to acknowledge what the Bible says. I think this should be enough, especially after seeing Abraham and Sarah, which is all about the union between a man and a woman and God bringing them together, contrasted with this here. We read about Adam and Eve and all the beauty of that, which was really not that long ago, even though we've been many months going through this. But I want to I go through this, and as I've said before, this is not a pleasant topic, but in this day and age that we're living in, we have to know these things because I do not want anybody to be able to deceive you by telling you that there is a place in the Bible that says such and such, or that it doesn't actually do such and such. So, as if this passage is not enough, let's, let's get some clear teaching here. Twice in the book of Leviticus, the Lord prohibited this kind of thing. Leviticus 18.22, the Lord said, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So in God's law for Israel, he very clearly prohibited homosexuality. And he put a very harsh penalty upon it. And this is not saying that today we ought to go out and start killing gays and lesbians, obviously. This was God's civil code that he gave to the nation of Israel. And we have been tasked with a different job, which is to go out and bring redemption to everybody. But just to make that very clear, although I think it already was. But he says, why? Why would the Lord put such a penalty on that? Because he says it is an abomination. So the Lord is grounding that not in law, not in civil issues, but in morality. 
And this has been the argument that some will try to do. They want to try and take a stand on, on proper sexual morality based on some legal or some social thing that it's better for the nation when we have solid families and it's good for us to be bearing children and for the government to promote that. God skipped past all of that. God said it's wrong. It's an abomination. To go right back to Jude 7, he said the sodomites indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And that is what God condemns. The unnatural element in homosexuality. I do not need to explain this to you, but it needs to be talked about. Men and women were literally, biologically made for each other. And when God made it that way, as we read in the very beginning of Genesis, God looked at it and said, it is good. Sin is a corrupter. Sin comes into the good thing that God has made and corrupts it into something else. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the corruption that sin brings to this matter specifically. Romans 1, 26 through 28. He's been running through a, a long passage that would you do well to read. I'm just going to give you some representative verses. But he said, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If you read through the book of Romans chapter 1, he's describing what happens when people reject God repeatedly. And he uses that phrase, God gives them up over and over again. And he says he gave them up to their idols because they weren't going to acknowledge him. He says here he gave them up to dishonorable passions because they're not going to acknowledge God as Lord. Therefore, God can't tell me what to do with my body. Therefore, God removed a measure of restraint from their mind. So for the Apostle Paul and also for us here in this passage homosexuality on a widespread level, especially at a national level, is a sign of God's permissive judgment for people who refuse to acknowledge God. Paul says this is one of the marks of a people that have pushed God away so much that God has removed his hand and said, fine, do it your way. He says idolatry is one of those markers as well, and he gives some others if you want to go and read the whole passage. A debased mind, he says, doing what is not natural. Now, even to say those things that I just said is to be denounced as a bigot. You hate people. You're homophobic. You're whatever term you want to use. But we, as believers in Christ and disciples of the Lord, have to confront our culture's blind spots in the light of God's word in strength and in love. We're so good at doing it when we go to other cultures and we go as missionaries and we see the ways that they need to be transformed by the gospel and we very patiently and very kindly help them work through that. We cannot be so arrogant as to bring it home and assume that, well, when we disagree, it's okay for us to disagree. We are no better than our brothers and sisters around the world. And this is a major cultural blind spot for us. And what has been done today is to move the conversation around this topic away from the act of homosexuality to the realm of identity. Do you see how the Lord phrased it in Leviticus? He says that they have committed an abomination. 
They shall not do that, for it is an abomination. He says they are doing things that Paul says in Romans 1 are dishonorable, to do what ought not to be done. But that is not where the conversation is had today. It's had in the realm of identity. It's not, I commit homosexual acts. I am gay. I am lesbian. And for you to attack those things is for you to attack me. That is the clever lie that we have to deal with. Because we can't have the conversation because people will use this phrase here. You, you deny my right to exist. Which is ridiculous, obviously. I mean, on the face of it, you kind of hear that and you kind of stammer like, what are you talking about? But when you have tied who you are to doing this thing, it prevents you from evaluating that thing because for you, it doesn't matter what I'm doing because that's who I am and I cannot help it. That's what's so tricky about this. This is why people will appeal to God's love. And we're like, it's so clear. It says, don't do that. And like, but it says, God loves me. And that's who I am. And therefore, God accepts me. Or they want to speak about acceptance. We want to speak about the culture. Right? You, you watch the, the commercials, especially that are on TV now. Whenever they're trying to push some kind of gay or lesbian thing. It's, it's never about the act itself. Amen. It's always about, the, look at this beautiful woman. Are you saying that these two beautiful women can't live the life they want to live? Are you saying that this little kid shouldn't be allowed to be around the, these two dads or whatever it is? It's never about the act itself. Or it's about celebrating the culture and the parades and the colors and we're free and we're doing our own thing. None of which inherently we'd have a problem with because it is trying to take the conversation as far away from the act itself as possible. And if you even bring it up, no one wants to talk about that. And it's offensive to even discuss it. It's similar to the abortion question. It's like, if we can't even talk about, you feel it's indecent to even say the thing that we're discussing, then why, why are we even having this conversation? Very common. You hear we were born this way, as if that settles it. I was born gay. So you can't, you can't say that I'm wrong. I can't help feeling this way. You know, I, I've pretty much given up fighting with that because it's not productive first of all but secondly it's irrelevant it doesn't matter how you were born every single one of you has been born into sin I was born into sin every single one of you has a predisposition through nature or nurture something that you were born with and you born with a hot temper and you just can't help it you were raised a certain way and now you have a hard time trusting people and you hurt people because your parents were bad to you or whatever it is. Every single one of us has that. But all of us are expected to surrender all of those things at the cross. Every single one of us. We don't make exceptions. We can't make exceptions. It's too serious. So, well, this is who I am. I was born this way. You must be born again. Is that not what Jesus said? You must be born again of water and the Spirit. You must be crucified with Christ. That old man, that old woman that you were, that had all of these things and all of these problems, that has to die daily. Anyone who is not willing to give up everything, including their passions, including their preferences. Jesus said, if you don't hate your own father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. So, for someone to come in and say, this is who I am, I'm not giving that up. It doesn't matter what that thing is. You cannot follow Jesus Christ. 
But you know what happens? When you do surrender everything that you are, when you say, I don't care what it costs, Lord, I'm laying it all at your feet. I'm nailing it all to the cross, coming to you naked and afraid. That's when the Lord accepts you. That's what it means to be accepted just as you are. When you're not holding on to all that stuff. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. And God himself begins to work on your heart. Romans chapter 12 says that we become transformed by the renewal of our mind. Those old patterns of thought, the Holy Spirit comes and wears them away and redirects the flow of your mind. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away and all things have been made new. That's God's solution. Not just to this sin, but to every sin. So anybody that wants to stand before Jesus Christ... And say, Lord, I'll follow you, but no way. I had a, a, a situation that is exactly like this. Do you remember the story when Jesus told the rich young ruler? He said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And he says, well, you know the commandments. And he runs through all of them. And he says, Lord, I've kept all these. And he says, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and then come follow me. Now, Jesus didn't tell that to everybody. But he told it to this guy because that was the thing that was binding this guy. And Jesus knew that was the one thing that would keep him from following Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, well, you just, you just get in and then we'll work that out later. He says, no, everything, you drop it and then you come in. I remember there was a young woman in our youth group in Virginia who told us that she was a lesbian. And it was, all right, we're, we love you, but you're not going to be trying to proselytize or any of that in here. And she was respectful of that. And she came to one of our camps and she wanted to become a Christian. She wanted to, to pray and believe in Jesus Christ. And I sat down across from her and she said, but you know, uh, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change the, the gay thing. I'm not going to change that. And I said, you have to change that. And she said, well, I, I just think that God's okay with it. I'm like, I'm telling you, God is not okay with it. You've got to lay down everything. And she goes, okay, well, then, then maybe this isn't for me then. That was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Because I could have said, you know, just, just say the prayer and we'll work this out later. But I couldn't lie to her that way. Jesus had to send that young ruler away until he could get it together. There were many that had to walk away from Jesus. Part of the problem is that we become like Lot here. When we want to try to address something so egregiously sinful, we try to not clear the slate. We try to work it backwards a little bit. He says, don't rape these men, rape my daughters, or they'll come out to you and it'll be consensual and that will make it okay. Is that a lesser sin? I suppose so. But we look at that and we go, Lot, are you crazy? Why would you do that? No. He was still keeping their minds and their hearts in the realm of passion, not in the realm of holiness. He didn't call them and say, you all are wrong. You must stop this instant and repent. Instead, he said, look, instead of directing all this energy here, direct it over there. When the, the very drive and passion they had was wrong. And we have a tendency to do this in that we engage in the same hypersexualized culture that the rest of the world does. And then we want to come and say, no, but, but this part is wrong. And the world looks at that and rightly sees it as inconsistent. It's like, you can't have all this and then just not that. And this is why we've seen the can get kicked down the road over, over decades, haven't we? 
Don't sleep together. Okay, they're sleeping together. Just, just don't live together. Okay, now they're living together. Okay, well, you know what? As long as it's a man and a woman. Okay, now it's gay. Okay, as long as you don't get married. Okay, now they're married. But as long as you're not transgender, you can't do that. It doesn't work because you're, you're trying to do what Lot's doing, which is ratchet it backwards rather than saying, no, all of it to be like Jesus and flip the tables over and say, get these things out of here. First Thessalonians four verses three through five. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And you know, not every homosexual who comes to Jesus and repents of that, they're not all going to be able to just move on and live a normal life. That's not going to happen. And you know what? That's okay. Because in, in Jesus, being single and being celibate is not a curse. It's not a problem. And in fact, in many ways, the Bible talks about it as an advantage. Say, so, well, I'm just, I don't know if I'd ever be able to be attracted to a woman. You don't have to be to follow Jesus. And we, we hear that and we go, oh, that's crazy. I could never imagine just controlling myself for my whole life. That's our problem right there. We're so steeped in the passion of lust that trying to figure out where to direct it is our problem. And you can't do that. You cannot hope to redeem our thinking on sex or marriage or gender by trying to walk two steps behind the world, trying to tug back and make it go slower. Your whole mindset needs an overhaul. Now, this does not mean that we become hateful. But you know what? I'll say it. I'll go ahead and say it. In most cases, almost every case, I have found that Christians are not hateful. I, I don't know that I've ever met a Christian that is that frothing, hateful, anti-gay, I want to I kill them all and hang them out in the street. I, I've never even met that guy. For as much as the world talks about those people, I've never met one. I know that they're there. But why do we accept that accusation? Paul said, it's a very, very small thing for me to be judged by you. The Lord knows who I am. In some cases, we've got to do more than speak the truth kindly. Say, so we don't hate you. It's like, well, you just said that we're an abomination. I said that the act is an abomination. It's the same thing. Well, that's what my Bible says. I can't, I can't budge on that. Well, then you hate me. I don't hate you. Yes, you do. Well, I can't convince you. I am willing to stand before God and be judged on that one. And in most cases, guys, people will, will get it after a while. If it's somebody you know and love, they might have those moments where they blow up at you. But over time, they'll see what's right. Peter talks about putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people by walking in righteousness. We speak strongly because the word speaks strongly. But we've got to be also prepared to love and help those people who seek to escape this life. And one of the hardest things for folks that have come out of that is that they are coming from a community that unquestioningly supports everything they do. And then to walk in the church and to find a lesser version of that is not good. And we've got to make sure that we are prepared to love those who will, will become our brothers and sisters. And we do that by holding honorable, godly positions on these things. Which is why the church, especially in the New Testament, talks an awful lot about maintaining God's design for men and women in marriage and in the church. A lot. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 15. It might seem an odd issue to talk about, but I'll explain it. He says, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? 
But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. What's he doing here? He's exhorting the Corinthians here and all the churches to maintain very clear distinctions between male and female. Now, you go to some of the Polynesian islands, the men have long hair, okay? Are they in sin? No, but they, they have their other distinctions between men and women. You know, our, our men wear suits and the ladies wear dresses. You might adjust that to say, isn't it disgraceful for a man to wear a dress? Now, isn't that just kind of obvious, Paul's saying? Isn't that natural? It's because he's saying there's a difference, and in the church, we're not blurring the lines. This is why we also cannot affirm transgenderism, which is a part of the conversation here, too. It's an abomination for a man to abandon his God-given body for something else. It goes right back to what we said before. God made everything good. We believe as Christians, we just talked about this on Sunday with the resurrection from the dead. We believe that the body is a good thing. The body is not evil. The body is not trapping you. The Lord is not going to have you float forever as a ghost in heaven. He's not going to absorb you into the Godhead. He's going to resurrect and glorify your body. God created Adam and Eve in a body. Jesus Christ was made incarnate into a body. The body itself is good. It's not a burden. It's not sinful. It's part of who you are. Now, we can have academic discussions about are you a spirit and a body or are you a spirit, soul, and body. In the end, you're one thing. <laughs> you're a person. God brought it all together. The Bible describes those in the afterlife who have not been resurrected yet as being with the Lord and being comforted but being unclothed. They're, they're waiting for that resurrection. So for someone to say, I was born into the wrong body, is to shake your fist at God. Romans 9.20, didn't Paul say, Who are you to say to your maker, Why have you made me this way? I don't know if there is a more direct verse that speaks to that whole issue. I was put into the wrong body. There's only one person that has control over that, and that is our Lord. But even here, with this issue especially, you've got to recognize the pain that is behind a statement like that. You've got some people where it's trendy and it's cool to say that I'm gender fluid or something like that, and you know, I'm, I'm going to wear my hair long and put on a skirt and say, oh yeah, I'm non-binary. Like, some people, that's... That's just kind of a thing. It's a trend. They're in college and they're trying things out. But somebody who legitimately believes, I, I, I was actually born a woman and I'm in a man's body. I'm going to have drastic radical surgery and take hormonal therapy to change myself. There's pain behind that. And we've got to remind each other and also those that are struggling with that, that God made you well. He made you with love. He made you with design. Psalm 139, 14, right? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When someone comes and says, I think I'm really a man and I was born into the wrong body, you say, no, you're not. The Lord looked at you and it says in Jeremiah, he handcrafted you in the womb. He loved you before he ever knew you. He said, this is exactly how I want her to be, how I want him to be. Don't let the world, the devil, the people around you lie to you and tell you there's something wrong with you because there's nothing wrong with you. Amen. And it's backwards because we say, oh, you're telling the trans person that there's something wrong with them. No, you're the one telling them that. You come to your friend and say, I'm truly a woman. You're, what you're saying is a terrible, horrible thing to say. What you're saying is, I'm a freak. I don't belong. I'm weird. I, I'm bizarre. I, I, I shouldn't be like this. And then when you say, yeah, you're right. 
You subtly have reinforced every insecurity that person has. Rather than putting your arm around them and saying, no, no, you, you're not. God made you just the way you are. I love you just the way you are. I don't want to see you go about trying to drastically change yourself. I love you like this. That's the true love that Jesus speaks to people. He looks past all that stuff. So when it comes to the cultural conversation, we've got to speak boldly. But when you come to the individual, you've got to speak like Jesus did with the woman at the well who'd had five husbands and now she's living with another guy. How did Jesus approach her? Was he yelling and screaming and hollering in her face? And you read that story. She was trying to pick a fight with Jesus. She had an attitude. You've known women like that, let's be honest. She had a chip on her shoulder. She was trying to keep him at arm's length. She says, hey, would you mind getting me a drink? So what are you doing talking to me, Jew? And Jesus is like, I'm just, I'm just thirsty, that's all. And she goes, oh, so you're a religious guy. I got a religious question for you. And Jesus is just having the conversation and bringing it back to her and loving on her and bringing it right back to what's real. And that, that's exactly what happened. She was able to say, okay, this is the Messiah. And why do we have to be so insistent about this? Why are we so insistent on maintaining gender distinctions and gender roles in the church? Why do we say, no, we're not going to have female pastors? Why do we say in our premarital counseling, husbands, you lead and love your wives. Wives, you submit to and respect your husbands. Why are we going to say that? Because as we see here in Genesis, as we already read, as I think I mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, where it says that Sodom was an example of what happens to those who walk in these kinds of sins. God is going to judge people who flout his authority and walk in sin. He made an example out of Sodom for us to see and fear and tremble and to be motivated to go out and love and save those that are trapped. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10. Folks will say, the Old Testament condemns homosexuality, but not the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Every time Paul says, do not be deceived, you can guarantee that there are people who are deceived on this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He explicitly says, Men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. That actually in Greek is a translation of two Greek words. The words are malakos and obscenokoites. A malakos is a passive partner in a homosexual act. And obscenokoites is the active partner in a homosexual act. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 uses that second word also about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's as, it's as explicit and clear as can be. In fact, it's so explicit that when the ESV went to translate it, they used a euphemism to cover it up because it would be a little too explicit to have your kids reading that. There's no escaping this, Christian. This is how God made us, and our sin has corrupted it, and those who tr are trapped in it must be born again. And they have had the tragic misfortune to be born in a society that rather than telling them that they're wrong and they must repent, celebrates it. Your family might get upset when you come out to them, but you can go down the street and people will throw you a giant party. So we cannot try to fit in or appear progressive or accepting or woke or whatever it is by accepting the world's dogma on this issue. 
say, well, listen, I think it's wrong, but other people are going to do what they're going to do. You know what the Lord condemns that to? Romans 1.32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I would never, but you know, I don't really have a problem with it. That's called giving approval to those who practice those things. The Lord is a judge, and those people walking in this sin are headed on a path that ends in the violent, horrible judgment of God. And you have the gospel. You must speak the truth in love. I realize this is uncomfortable to talk about. It's difficult to talk about. I realize many of us have friends and family who fall into these categories. I certainly do. But we are their only hope. Lot's halfway methods don't work. We've got to hold high the banner of God's righteousness. Why can't you accept me for the way I am? He said, because you must be born again. I have been born again. No, you have not, because you are not evidencing the fruit of God's righteousness. You are flouting the authority and the word of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. God and I have an understanding. He said, it's okay. No, he didn't. And you could apply all the things that I just said to any other sin that you care to name. If you're walking in unrepentant, open, blatant sin, there's no hope for you until you repent of those things. And Jesus Christ wants to put his finger on the one thing that you couldn't bear to lose and said, that's what I want. That goes on the cross if you want to come and follow me. We don't say these things because we're mean. We don't say them because it's easy. It's not easy to say these things. But because they're true. And because we believe that the Lord is a just and righteous judge. And in his mercy, he has sent you out. You are the mercy that he's showing to that person. How are you going to proceed? Let's read verse 12 now down to verse 29. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, joking around. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them. And they brought them out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. He's saying, I don't know if I'm strong enough to make it up those hills. He would have been old like Abraham was. I think the journey's too hard for me. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little or trifling. 
The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew all those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So the angels in the house... Picture this scene. They're in this house. It's night. They've barred the doors. Lot almost got attacked and molested by these men. They're clamoring for the angels to be brought out. He's just volunteered his daughters to go out. The angels have struck them with blindness. They're outside clamoring and wailing and trying to get at the door. And the angel turns around and says, you've got to go now. Who do you have with you? Get all your, your family and take them out. Judgment is coming. So finally in this cycle, we've seen the hammer fall. All along from chapter 18 until now, the Lord has been saying, we're going to go and investigate Sodom and see what's going on. Well, they've seen all they need to see now. The outcry against Sodom was great, not just because of sexual sin, but a whole mess of sins that these angels are referring to. That outcry is like the children of Israel crying out in the land of Egypt against Egypt. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 says, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. A lot of those things sound painfully familiar, don't they? For all those things, God is sending Lot out. Abraham had prayed, if there's 10 righteous, spare the city. They found one. And he barely counts in a lot of ways. But we see Lot's daughters were apparently engaged their fiancés were not with the mob, but he shows up and he says, hey, got to get out of here. And it says they thought he was jesting. Like, what, what is this? Is this a joke? Are you crazy? You know what? Go home. We'll see you in the morning. It's the middle of the night. And the next day it says that he's lingering. They, they still won't leave. The sun comes up. And finally it says that the Lord being merciful to him, the angels seized his wife and his daughters and set them loose outside the city. And then he said, run for the hills. And he says, oh, those hills are so far. Can I go to Zoar instead? Which was apparently another city that God had programmed for destruction. And God said, I'll spare that little village for your sake. And that day, Sodom, Gomorrah, all the surrounding cities were rained upon by sulfur and fire from heaven. Divine judgment. This was no earthquake. This was no volcano. It says that sulfur and fire rained from heaven, very similar to the language about the flood, right, of the heavens opening up and things raining down, except it's fire and sulfur this time. We can't even find where these things were to this day. And in verse 26, it says that Lot's wife looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. What does that mean? Well, we have what I think are some examples of this. In ancient times, when the volcano in Pompeii erupted, the volcanic ash swept down through the city, the people that were 
overtaken by that volcanic ash and the lava and all that. Their bodies were petrified by the heat and by the ash. And there are these statues that are not statues. They're real people to this day that are there. And I think this is probably what we're talking about when we say she turned to a pillar of salt. There are, of course, other ideas that this is just another divine thing that God did here. But I think what we have is that the lava and the ash and the brimstone and the fire torched her. I think this look back was not just a look to see what was happening and to see how far they'd come because you see the severity of the judgment here. We can assume that there was bitterness for what was going on. This isn't fair. This isn't right that God would do this. There is regret of, I wish we could have stayed. I wish we could have been in that place forever. Maybe even rebellion that I knew this God was not a God we ought to follow. And God, it seems, deliberately judged her. Maybe she stopped running. Doesn't say, but maybe they were running for the hills and running for Zoar, and, and she stopped to look and to watch. And she's out there like the angels had told them not to be. Doesn't say. But Lot has now lost his, his wife as well as the city. And the camera towards the end there pans back to Abraham, who goes back to the hill where he had prayed before the Lord to intercede for Sodom. And he sees the whole valley smoking like a furnace. Imagine that. You've got the sea. And in that Jordan Valley, which Lot looked on and saw it was so beautiful and said, that's the land that I want. And he said, it's smoking like smoke comes up from a furnace. And verse 29 reminds us that it was Abraham's blessing that delivered Lot from Sodom. And that makes sense. We know from later on in the New Testament, Lot himself was not a wicked man. But it was the intercession of Abraham ultimately that delivered him out of there. Imagine seeing that. Imagine seeing the city going up in smoke. We think of things like the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the bombing of Dresden or 9-11 when the towers fell. Imagine that multiplied on a, on a huge scale. In Revelation 16, it's in the middle of describing all the judgment that God pours out on the world. All the people who see it in heaven say, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God sits in heaven in unapproachable righteousness. God is all good. God is not great on a curve like we do. We evaluate who's good by comparing ourselves to each other. But God comes in and he wrecks the curve because you compare yourself to God and he has no wickedness in him. And for that reason, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. If you ever wonder about the, the justice of God, have you ever seen a terrible tragedy that somebody committed like maybe a, a school shooting or some horrible tragedy and you feel that anger in your heart and you say, those people deserve blank. You're right, they do. Now imagine that multiplied on every single wrong thing that has ever been done or ever even been thought about before. God's judgments are not arbitrary. They're not capricious. God doesn't just one day wake up and decide he's going to torch Sodom and Gomorrah. His righteousness is just, and however we feel about it, the Lord only does what is right. I already referenced 2 Peter 2.6. It says, God judged Sodom as an example to all of us of what happens to those who walk in wickedness. 
2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Someday that fire and sulfur is going to rain down, not just in one place, but on the entirety of the whole world. Every individual in this room will have to give an account for every secret and idle word and pay for it with their own blood in the fires of hell. But we look at this and we say, wait a minute, Lot didn't suffer judgment. Why? Because he was righteous, yes. But also because the chosen one of God interceded for him. As Abraham said to the Lord repeatedly in Genesis 18, God does not punish the righteous with the unrighteous. He always makes a way of escape for his people. Rahab helped the spies in the land of Jericho and the city was destroyed, but she and her family were spared. You and I have a chosen one interceding for us. Jesus Christ interposed his blood between us and the wrath of God so that we too might avoid that coming judgment when all the heavens and the earth are going to melt with a fervent heat, the word says. And we may not be perfect. Lot wasn't perfect. But for those who call on the name of the Lord, when you've got Christ in your corner, there will be deliverance on that day. And I believe that just as Lot and his family were seized and taken out of the city because he said, I can do nothing until you leave, so too we believe that we will be caught up. We will be seized into the sky before God pours his wrath out on the world. It's comforting. But it's also sobering. Christian, don't mess around with sin. Abandon your sins. And if you're not a Christian, if you're a sinner, if you're, you know you're outside of all this, it's time to repent. Leave everything that you've ever lived for behind and say, God, I'm going to start fresh with you. And you can escape the judgment that's coming. God didn't send his son for no reason. Jesus died for all that. Take advantage of the grace of God while you still have the chance. The Lord is a just and righteous judge. And he must judge sin. And he waits as long as he can. But the Lord cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Which is why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus had to suffer and die. Because that's what sin deserves. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what your loved ones deserve. But the Lord made a way of escape for his people. For those who will call upon his name, it says every one of them will be saved. Everybody who comes, whether it's any of the issues we talked about tonight or anything else, and you say, God, here it is. I've got nothing left. You can rebuild my life from scratch. That's when salvation comes.